really excited about the study today, and we're going to have three placeholders this morning in Exodus 25. Exodus 25, for those of you who want to have uh, your places of Scripture, Exodus chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Uh, I've been asked quite a bit from people about the, the intensity of this study, the length of this study. Uh, I, I've never, to be honest with you, I've never finished this study. I've finished it in writing, but I've never finished delivering it. Um, I hope to get that opportunity here one day. Uh, part of that is it, just the deeper I go into the tabernacle, the more I find treasures in the Word of God that help us. And you know, really, the purpose of this study is to provide a spiritual buffet for God's people, for you to feast on. I know there's things you may not grasp at the moment you hear it. There may be things that you, all of a sudden the light bulb turns on, that's the illumination of the God's Spirit showing you these things. Uh, but really, it is a buffet of spiritual truths. You know, one thing I've learned over the years, I've been saved all, almost 38 years, that you cannot outstudy God's Word. The Word of God is inexhaustive. And the deeper you go, the more treasures you find. But it does take intense study sometimes to do that. Reading is a good thing in the Scriptures. and I would imagine everybody in here is a student, at least a reader of Scripture. But to be a student, to go deep sometimes requires uh, some real thought, some, some real prayer, and obviously... Uh, some real time uh, dwelling on the Word of God. So I'm hoping and praying that uh, God will reveal some great truths here as we lay out the tabernacle. Now I'm not just teaching on the tabernacle. I'm teaching on what's connected to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is rich in typology. And certainly there's going to be a lot of things that you'll see here as we lay this study out. We've really just been in the way of introduction. The introduction is probably about four weeks long. And we're in our third week. But I want to kind of recap a little bit about last week. And then I want to move into some truths that we find from that study. And things that we can... Oh, let me turn this on. Make sure we're good to go. How are we going here, brother? Is this thing on? Uh, let's see here. Here we go. Sorry about that, folks. i got to learn technology in this place. And I remember to stay over here with the camera. So I uh, praise the Lord for those that do watch online. So, last week we, we, we really started with the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus chapter 25, if you'll read there with me, verses 8 and 9 again, uh, it says, I let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's a loaded statement, as I told you, God wanting to be with His people, despite the condition they were in. Just remember that. God wants, sometimes we're in tough condition, God still wants to be with you and fellowship with you. And he says, according to all that I will show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, which we know there's a pattern, a tabernacle in heaven that God was reflecting here on the earth, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. So the first instrument out of the gate, before he builds the tabernacle, is the ark. And we studied that in, in, in detail last week, and I'll, I'll summarize it here in a minute. But he gives details to the ark here. He says, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. You say, who cares? You're going to care when you see why that's important. You will be amazed at why God gave those specific measurements. I won't tell you today. I'll tell you in a few weeks. 
Got to keep you coming back, folks. And it shall overlay it with, now watch, pure gold within, and without shall the overlay it, and shall make it upon a crown of gold round about. So he has it made of wood, and he has it made of gold. Now, you go over to the altar of sacrifice, and it's made of brass. You go over to the brass laver that's in the tabernacle, it's made out of pure brass. And then you go into the holy place, and you got a table made of wood and gold, but then you have the golden candlestick, which is pure gold, the golden incense, which is pure gold, but then when you get to the ark, the first instrument to be built was made of wood and of gold. Now we, we clearly laid out last week that the ark was a foreshadowing, it was a type of Christ. And so, hence the reason why it was first, mentioned because Christ has the preeminence in all things he is the first and the last you read there in Colossians 3 that by him or he is before all things and by him all things consist the the ark where's where the presence of God was located is what gave meaning and purpose to all the tabernacle you take the presence and the ark away and nothing had meaning you take away Christ and nothing has purpose it's all void and so again why it was mentioned First, but the, why the wood and why the gold? And why the difference material? Well, as you study this out, you'll see that wood pictures here the humanity of Christ. But the gold pictures the deity of Christ. So you have the wood and the gold together in the ark because it foreshadows Christ. What's even more interesting is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, Unto us a child is Born. That's the humanity of Christ. He was born as a child with flesh. A son is given. You know why he wasn't born? The son wasn't born? Because he always existed. There's the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. The wood representing the humanity and the gold. God preserved each of these items in specific detail. And the ark is a type of Christ and it was preserved for us also or by God, starting in Genesis 6. The ark, Noah's ark, foreshadowed, once again, Christ. In the context of Noah's ark, there was the law first mentioned. The ark is first mentioned. And so, once again, it, has, it plays an important why the first mentioned, and what is it connected to when it is mentioned? Well, in that very context of Genesis, not get, Genesis 6 and 7, you have sin, judgment, you have a remedy mentioned. By the way, what I didn't have up there is grace is mentioned for the first time in Scripture in Genesis 6, and it's connected to the ark. Once again, the ark being Christ, connected to grace. We don't get to Christ without grace. And there has to be an invitation to come to the ark, just like there's an invitation to come to Christ. Come thou in all thy house, he said in Genesis chapter 7. So there's an invitation, and we studied that, and then this piece we're going to really hone in on here is the sealing or God shutting them in. If we look in Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16, well verse 1 is the invitation. Uh, he said to uh, Noah, come thou and all thy house, come. The Holy Spirit speaks to all sinners to come to Christ. And then we know in verse 16, when everything was complete, God's about to judge the, the earth. They went in, in male and female, 
All the flesh is God to command him. And the Lord, I love that verse, and the Lord shut him in. Noah didn't shut himself in. The Lord shut him in because the Lord is doing the work of sealing him. Everything is done by God. Our whole salvation is done by God from start to finish. And we're going to show how this will play, play out here in a few minutes. So we read that the Lord shut him in. It's the Lord that does the sealing. So we, we, we can learn from this the doctrine of eternal security. Now, this is precious to us as saints. But it is abused in some cases. But in other cases, it's denied. I grew up, before I, I got saved, I was involved in Christendom. I was in, introduced to a false gospel. A gospel of works mixed with grace. And one of the things they taught you is you could lose your salvation. A lot of, lot of uh, uh, religions out there teach you can lose your salvation. So I used to ask the question, what causes me to lose my salvation? Never got an answer. What sins do, if I commit, if I commit them, and how often will I lose my salvation? How will I know if I lose my salvation? If I lose my salvation, how do I get it back? That was going through my mind when I was in this false doctrine. This false gospel. And then I was introduced to the true gospel. The gospel of the grace of God. And the eternal security of the believer. And brother, I, I, I've never been the same since. Now, the scripture teaches the eternal doc, this doctrine of eternal security. Because we see in, the, Lord did the, the Lord shut him in. Not Noah. God did the work of finishing his salvation a type of salvation. So in whom you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the moment you trusted Christ, God did an operation on you. I don't clearly understand this in Colossians 2, but it talks about a circumcision made without hands. Raised by the faith. But God did the work there of sealing you and there you were receiving the Holy Spirit at the moment you believed. For how long are we sealed? The Bible says in Ephesians 1, verse 12 and 13, until the redemption of the purchased possession. That is, God bought you, and He will keep you until the day He takes you home. Now, you can fight Him. You can, you can go against God, but it's not going to end well. Again, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Why would we not want to grieve the Holy Spirit? Because you're sealed. He lives with you and He's not leaving. Remember in the Old Testament it says that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell with them. That's an Old Testament doctrine. The Holy Spirit did not dwell within the believers. He would come and go, come and go. But in the New Testament, what changed is the Holy Spirit came to dwell in believers. Permanently. Until He takes them home. So salvation is of the Lord, according to Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. God, It's God's salvation, not ours. As I said last week, oh, people will tell me, I think I've lost my salvation. It's not yours to lose. If you're saved, it's not yours to lose. Or I'm hanging on to my salvation. You're not hanging on to any salvation. God's hanging on to you. <laughs> salvation is of the Lord. So the, it teaches us that the Lord shuts you in. God places you into the ark, and He seals you. For you're safe and secure from all alarm, leaning on the everlasting arms. Okay? I thought when you were singing that verse, so that's exactly where we are. We're safe and secure in the arms. Every animal and every 
all eight of Noah's family were safe and secure. They were saved from the wrath of God outside. So again, the ark was a type of this, our salvation, a type of Christ. Continuing on in this, this idea of eternal security as being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. there's any doubt about this, I love this verse. Because watch the, the tense in this verse. It says, Moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. I don't see any glorified bodies right now. <laughs> but he says, in the mind of God, it's done. He sealed you. He shut you in. It's complete. Right now the Bible says you're seated with him in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 2. You're seated with him. But you're here on the earth. So from a practical sense, God's working, but eternally you're done. You're seated with him. Your life, Colossians 3, is hid with Christ. When he appears, you shall appear with him. You're with him. If that's not enough, and I'll throw a couple more verses. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. That's not water baptism. That's spiritual baptism. The Holy Spirit immersed you, baptized you into the body of Christ. And when He did that work, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, that we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Whoa. Think about that. We're members of his body, of his flesh, of his bone. He made you one with him. So that verse in John chapter 10, verse 28, 29 says, I give unto them eternal life. And they, who gives it to them? Who gives it to us? It was, it was God's gift. He's not taking it back. And he says, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So you're in the hand of Christ. But then he says, my father which gave them is greater than all. Looking at the authority. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So you are in the hand of Christ. Christ and us are in the hand of God the Father. And no one can pluck you out. The work is done. You're sealed until the day of redemption. We rest in the finished work of Christ just like Noah didn't have any thing to do when God sealed them in. It was just depend on God. Wait on God. What a, what a great truth. And something that unfortunately has been uh, clouded in confusion. You hear all the time, like I said, coming out of a church that taught you could lose your salvation. Uh, they often taught that if you taught this doctrine of eternal security of the believer, that you gave people a license to sin. You've heard that, right? That means if I know I'm saved, I'm do, and, and, and I know, then I can just go do, out, do whatever I want. That, that is quite, that's fake news, by the way. It's absolutely fake news. Not, first of all, try doing that with God. If you're his child, he's not going to put up with that too long. He's going to have to deal with you in whatever way he needs to, to get your attention. But actually, it's motivation to serve God and to work for God. I, I don't know how it would be if i you know been in business for 35 years. If I went to work thinking every day I'm getting fired. 
I, I don't know how I could work. Knowing that oh, if I say something, I do something, I'm going to get fired. There's no motivation in that. I want to go work for a company that says, hey, you're good to go, man. We've got a contract. You, nobody's going to take that contract no matter what you do. Well, that's motivation to me, to serve and to help and to be part of something. That's why God gave us that doctrine. And those that want to teach the opposite are only hurting themselves and they're missing out on something wonderful for all of us. So we rest in the finished work of Christ just like Noah entered the ark safe and secure, his saved from the wrath of God, and he was resting in God's work, not his. So, moving on here. The second mention of the ark is in Exodus chapter 2. A little different here because I want to preface this. The ark here um, is connected to a river of death. Remember, this is where they were killing babies. They drowned them. A horrible, I, I, you know, I got a little two-month-old grandson. I just, the concept, the thought of, is just, it, how far do you have to be to want to kill a child? And, and then, to, I'm, I'm going to get on a topic here. Oh, I've got to be careful. But, you know, you, you think about some of these cities that went to full-term abortions and then celebrated it by lighting up the, parts of their city as if they accomplished something great. But we're going to see how that's connected to God here in a minute. And how that God's not going to put up with that. But here, this is a river of death, and yet the ark is present to keep a child safe and secure. So this, you know, we read here in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 3, when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes. There it is, it's mentioned again. And this time it's connected to Moses, and it's connected to death, and it's daubed with slime and pitch so it wouldn't sink, and put the child therein and laid it in flags by the river's brink. You know what kind of faith you would have to have to put your child? I mean, it's either he's going to get killed, or I'm just going to take my chances with God and see what God does. So by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. So it was faith connected to that ark as well. Just like our faith is connected to Christ, who's a type of here of the ark. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, another mention that's connecting uh, to make this ark a type of Christ is Israel shall be saved. That is, is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer who shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That verse in Romans eleven twenty-six, speaking of Christ as the deliverer. Who was the deliverer for Israel? Moses. Moses is told, as a ty- is told to us as a type of Christ. That God would raise up a prophet like unto his brother. So we know that Moses was a type of Christ who would deliver Israel. Christ is our deliverer and will be Israel's future deliverer. And it's once again connected to the ark. You can't miss it. Over and over God is preserving this type to let us know that the ark was a place of refuge for the sinner. And a place of, of that they could be safe. So... Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born, you shall cast into the river. That's in uh, chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 22a. So every son of born will cast, that's how they kill the babies back then. Now, they were, they obviously there was violence in the days of Noah. And we know God, he killed off humanity and preserved Noah and his seven, his family members. And of course the animals who had better sense to get into the ark than the humans did. But, so, it's, the Bible says they was corrupt throughout the earth, and the violence was through them. 
So there was great violence, and violence would you know, consist of murder. I'm sure there were murdering babies in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So I know they had to be murdering children, whatever, just no, no, no uh, regard for life. Well, here in Exodus 2, connected to the ark, they were killing babies before Moses delivered Israel. Interesting, they were killing babies when Christ was born. Herod went out and had all children under the age of two slaughtered. That's why Jesus fled to Egypt. He wasn't a baby, he was actually more grown up than, and they fled to Egypt as a family because they were killing babies, Matthew chapter 2. They're killing babies today in our present time. I went and looked at the statistics as of January of 2022 or 21. There was 62 million children or babies aborted. And that's what we know of, 62 million. So they're killing babies in our present time. So they're killing babies when Moses delivered Israel, killing babies when Christ delivered man from his sin, and they're killing babies today. What does that tell you? They're always killing babies before a monumental event in history. Always seems to be related to babies dying and then a monumental moment in history happens. The next great event will, will be the rapture. And then following the rapture, we know the tribulation and then the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Deliverer. So we know that these things are coming. I don't know when, but I do know that in every, every event where babies were being killed, something spectacular by God occurred. So in Exodus chapter 25, back there, 22, verse, chapter Exodus 30, verse 6 and 36. If you read these verses, God says again, repeats himself, I will meet with thee, I will commune with thee. So I want to I really spend a few minutes talking about this truth. There's something we can learn from that statement. I will meet with thee and commune with thee. Just think, when, God, when you woke up this morning, God says, hey, I want to spend time with you today. In fact, I want to spend the entire day with you. And when you go to bed, I want to spend time with you. When you wake up, I want to... That's God's purpose, to be with us. But God has to always work in our lives because our nature is not to spend time with God. But God wants to commune with us. So what I've learned from this, and this is a precious truth for all of us, is that God moves first in everything we do. And then we respond. Now, I know that man can do things to cause God to respond. I get that. But in general, man, God initiates, man responds. Humanism is the opposite of that. They teach that man, man moves and God responds. Or they try to bring God to the place of man. God says to man to come up to God. For my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your ways. As, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts. Isaiah 50, uh, Isaiah, help me out somebody, 55 verses 8 through 9 I think. So God moves, God initiates, man responds. And so, and when you look back at this, something interesting um, in uh, chapter 40 about Moses, it said often, I think it was eight times, it said, thus did Moses all that God commanded him to do. Moses finished all that God commanded him to do. So eight times God said, commanded him to do. He did it. So he did exactly what God told him to do in order to fellowship 
and communicate with him and to, and to commune. God has a very specific way in which he communicates and fellowships with his people. He doesn't devi deviate from these, these truths. So we read as the tabernacle was set up exactly like God that allowed God to fellowship with his people. Now, could you imagine Moses going, you know, God, I don't quite agree with that altar of sacrifice that has to burn all day, you know, morning and night, and killing a lamb in the morning and in the evening, you know. What, what do you say, God, we just do this once a week? Let's just lighten up the load here. Let's kill a lamb once a week. Or let's not even kill the lamb. Let's just pretend we kill it because we don't want to harm the animals. You get my point. Is God had specific, I mean, detailed instructions on every instrument and how it was to be handled by the priest by the, and how the people were to sacrifice. And God says, that's how I will fellowship with you. What do we learn from that? Is God moves, man responds. It's not, I'll do it my way, and then God responds. Now, if we do it our way, God will respond. It won't be favorably. But God wants to move, and he says, okay, now I'm, you do it this way, I'll, I'm going to really bless you, and I'm going to spend time with you. That's what we learn here in God's moving. How do we, what, what do we see of this truth in the Scriptures? This is exciting. Here in his love, in 1 John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a wonderful, you know what, if you read down, I didn't include that verse, 1 John 4, I think it's 19, yes, 19. It says, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. He first loved us. God initiated here with Israel. He said, set it up this way and I'll commune with you, just like he does. Do it this way and I will commune with you. God has a certain way of worship and a certain way that he wants to commune with us, and we need to follow that way. But always God moving and we're responding. God moving and we're responding, not the other way around. I love, right out of the gate of scriptures, we learn this very truth. The earth was what? Without form and void. In other words, it served no purpose. In a, it, was, it was bathed in a, in a judgment of water. It was, it was just a bowl of water. And, and it was, so it had no purpose. It, had, it was void. It didn't mean anything. That's why it says the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. But then it says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. So God took something that was without purpose, and then he began to move. And when he said, let there be light, there was life. Things started to happen when God said it would happen. That earth wasn't moving. There was no purpose until God moved. And when God moved, it changed. It was without life and purpose until God moved. And this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you hath he quickened. That is, he made you alive. Well, why is that? Because you were dead in trespasses and sin. I was like that earth. I was void, without purpose, without any value, truly without value in life other than living breathing as an animal, in that sense, a sinful animal. But God said, he made me alive, who was dead. So God moved, and then I became alive. And he says, so we were once without life and purpose until God moved. This is so important, this truth, because this is why we beseech God in prayer. This is why we beg God for the things that we need, whether it's getting together for Sunday school, or it's our worship hour, or it's our daily job. Whatsoever you do, do it all in the, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God the Father by Him. Everything we do is for God's glory and for God's praise. And it's because He moved in our life and gave us purpose, but nothing had purpose until God moves. When you see sinners and they act the way they should, sinners, that's what they do when they're lost because they have no purpose. No they're just wandering dead people. I know it's a horrible thing to think of it that way, but that's what they are. And if they don't get life on them, they will die under the wrath of God. And we're going to see that clearly in the altar of incense, or altar of sacrifice. So we were once without life and God moved and gave us life. I love this verse. Now, this speaks of the sovereignty of God because this I'm not a hyper-Calvinist, never have, don't plan to be, and I've been around people, I've read books on it, you know, the fact that, you know, God is sovereign. For us to reconcile our free will and all that, maybe we may not have all the answers, but God protects our free will by His grace. He gives us a free will. We're not a bunch of robots just doing, but God has to still move first in our lives for anything to work. So there, here is the sovereignty of God clearly depicted in Scripture. One of my favorite verses in Scripture right here. Because it speaks of the power of God. Pilate said unto him, Jesus in front of Pilate in this insane, uh, the way they were handling uh, his, uh, his so-called jury and judge. It says, speakest thou not unto me, know not that I have the power. Now, this is Pilate speaking to God. Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And power to release thee? And Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power against me, except it were given from thee above. In other words, you're doing this, you will have me crucified because God said it would happen. God put you in this role when you were born, and put you in that role to be here, present this day, send me to judgment for crucifixion. God set it up in His sovereignty, knowing what would happen, and He says, you're not, have no power, because God has to move first for it to happen. We may think we have power, but ultimately, it, we'll get humbled and learn that we have no power at all. That anything we have will come from God. So contrary to any teaching of man, God is ultimately in charge of all things, at all times, and you just have to study the book of Job to know that. That God is ultimately in charge of everything. Gird up your loins, Job. I'm about to show you who's really in charge. For without me, you can do nothing. I have to live on that verse. Because I try to do a lot of things without God. You know, I, I, I find myself very trying to be self-sufficient, very independent. And then I'm reminded once again, over and over, that's, that's the nature. It leans that way, but God says, oh no, you've got to depend on me. Because without me, you can't do anything. I mean, truly, spiritually, nothing's going to happen. You have no purpose. If I do this without God's help, without God's anointing, without God's strength, then everything I've done is without purpose. It's meaningless. It's, if, I, if I come in here based on my skills and my strengths and my talents, which, by the way, came from God, but I start to depend on those as if I got something special, to give you that I have, God's not going to work. It'll be without purpose, without merit. So I just bathe it with God in prayer and asking, begging, beseeching God to help to move and to work because I can't do anything without Him. So with that, I'm going to give you a
quick introduction, because we have two minutes left, a real short introduction on, on next week's study. I promise you next week's study will be profound. I promise. It's one of my favorite moments to share this. I mean, there's a few, but this one's really, it, it boggles the mind on why details are important. And I know we're going through a lot of detail, but you're going to see it in a way maybe you've never seen it before. So I'm going to ask you to do something for me and to challenge yourselves. I would like everybody this week just take time to read chapters number, Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now when I told you things are laborious and boring and grieve, this is chapter 1 and 2. But I want you to read it. For those of you who want to take notes, read, study the names and study the numbers. So all you got to do, write the names down, write the numbers, write the locations. All that is going to come together in a way that is amazing. Because the details really matter. Remember Jesus said, when Moses wrote of me, you, had, you didn't believe Moses, but you would have believed him. Why? Because he wrote of me, Christ. So when Numbers chapter 1 and 2 is all that detail that's boring, Christ is stamped on every, every page in a way that is amazing. And so a careful study of the tabernacle is going to attest to this truth throughout, but the details in Numbers chapter 1 and 2 are important. People will say, does it really matter? And I get it. Not everybody's going to be called to teach and get into these details. I get that. I understand that. But I, but I do believe it. If every word is important. When Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, I just believe that. People might think I'm crazy, but every word has a purpose. I certainly have never, could never exhaust that, but they contain the deeper truths of God. So in conclusion with this, I want you to consider that God cares about the little things, the small details, and that's where we'll pick up next week, and then we'll get into the study of Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2. So pray that you, you'll have an opportunity to be here along with as well as those that, that are online. So with that, let's go to the word to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of study, a uh, gathering of your people, to lift up our Savior, to thank you, Father, for the, the Scripture and how it teaches us uh, about our dependence on you and that, God, it's everything is where you move and what we respond. God, help us to cleave to this truth, Lord. Thank you that you allow us to have this opportunity Open our eyes to these wonderful truths, Lord. And Lord, help us to feast upon these truths throughout the week, to have the strength and to have the, the, the joy of the Lord and be able to lift you up in everything we do and to say that whatever we do in word and deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church, Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.